Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. On this week's episode, I interviewed Pierre Rochard. Pierre is a Bitcoiner that's been in the space since 2013. He started off as an accountant, moved his way into you know building, and then uh, he also uh, is part of the Nakamoto Institute. Um, he's just a wealth of knowledge in the Bitcoin space and has great theories, and it was a it was a great conversation. So we we get into you know time chain, we get into you know big theories behind Bitcoin and and where things are going. Um, and I, I think you guys will love this conversation because we really uh you know it was a good one. I definitely want to do it again. Um, we also talked about like uh, a lot of Austrian economics. I know a lot of people are into Austrian economics, but we don't really talk about it too much. So I asked him some questions about it because he he is really, that's what started him down his Bitcoin journey. Um, so anyways, hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thanks as always to our sponsor, the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Go to shiftcrypto.ch slash Bitcoin Made Simple to get 5% off using your promo code Bitcoin Made Simple and uh, get yourself a hardware wallet because I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, exchanges are going insolvent. They're losing your Bitcoin keys. So please, please, please take your keys into your own hands with a Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It's the Bitcoin only version and you can take care of your keys and protect your wealth. Also, Movies Plus, go to mymoviesplus.com or download the app in any of the app stores. And uh, we really, really need your support because uh, we're about to come up against a big, big fight here. Um we're uh, good things, all good things. And we have some good announcements coming out very soon. But uh, yeah, just hold on to your butts. And uh, yeah, you can get uh, one year for $20 using the promo code SWAN, thanks to our partners at SWAN Bitcoin. And then also um, Upstream Data. Upstream is Steve Barber's company. They sell Bitcoin miners. They sell uh, hash huts if you're looking on the industrial scale, but they also have the black box if you're looking to do something on the quiet side on the lower scale. Um, so I will be getting a black box and I will be telling you guys all about it, but go to upstreamdata.ca to check out more about them. If you want to get in touch with me, go to Twitter. I am Corey underscore Tusik, and you can email the show Bitcoin made simple podcast at gmail.com. Thanks mentioned you have a couple little ones uh and i don't dox so i want to dox information um i'm very you know cautious about that but i have to ask you a parenting question and by the way everyone that's listening up i apologize for some reason my mic mic isn't working um so my audio is gonna be garbage but uh pierre has his mic and it's working so that'll be good but um pierre uh what was harder for you going from zero to one child or one to two um definitely zero to one um and um one to two brought its own challenges as well uh but i think that in either case the uh tremendous blessings uh far outweigh any kind of the difficulties oh yeah no that's what like if i ever complain about something about parenting first of all i try, ne try to never do it in front of my kids but like you know, it's never like, oh, parenting is bad. You know, it's just like, it's a, it's a challenge in and of itself, but um, it is, it is such a blessing, but yeah, I don't know. I, I found that going from one to two for us just absolutely kicked our butts. Like it was like with one, like if my wife had him, then we we're like, oh, okay. Like she's good. Like they're good. Um, I can do whatever I want. And then once we had two, I was like, it was like having like two footballs. Like, what do we do? What do we do? Like, yeah. um, 
my brother says going from two to three is a whole new ball game because you know you go from man to man coverage to zone defense and um <laughs> yeah i'm i'm uh i'm one of three brothers uh so i'm the middle child so i can only imagine uh how challenging it was right there. <laughs> especially boys and all that um you know we uh girls have their own challenges but yeah boys can be let's just say a little messy yeah um uh but uh so i just wanted to give everybody i'm sure a lot of people listening have you know pretty are pretty familiar with your background but just like give a quick background of your your origins into bitcoin and, and how you got uh there so that you know people that may not know have an idea yeah absolutely i mean i think the the thread really starts in uh summer of 2005 i was in high school and i I was on Wikipedia and I stumbled onto a Wikipedia article about anarcho-capitalism, which is this kind of um, anarchist ideology of, hey, the, the free market could do everything. We don't need governments at all. And I, I found that to be fascinating. So I went down that rabbit hole. I ended up on a website called Mises.org, which teaches about Austrian economics and um, started reading about uh, what what their point of view was on the economy, and already I was I was somewhat interested in economics at that point, and they had a really interesting view on what causes the business cycle. Uh, why does the economy have these booms and busts? And they really pointed to the money as being the central problem that that was causing this, which really. Well, it, it it goes against a lot of what mainstream economics teaches, which is that um, they'll point to human psychology of like, oh, okay, people are just irrational. And so that's why you get um, business cycles or they'll point to technology cycles, right? Of, oh, you have these massive technological breakthroughs and then uh, that causes economic disruption. Um, so the Austrians, you know, there's different schools of thought within Austrian economics, but the one that I found to, to be the most persuasive was that um, you have a combination of fractional reserve banking. So uh, the banking system creating more money and um, then combine that with the fiat system of central banks uh, that remove any limits to fractional reserve banking. And so now we have zero reserve banking um, and that that is uh, the... Uh, impetus the the central reason why we have business cycles in the economy um once i started reading about this stuff i, I just couldn't stop uh so i uh went down the rabbit hole and um that led me to then in college majoring in accounting uh because um the austrians have a tremendous amount of uh, respect for accounting uh, and economic calculation and profit and loss system. And um, I found that to be uh, more interesting to me than than finance, because if you study finance in college, um, it is basically you're studying fiat. Right? It's like it, it's not uh, that you're studying uh, sound money or sound finance or good finance. You're just studying Here's the existing system that you will uh, be an entry level cog in when after you graduate and um, you just have to like accept that it's all phony baloney. Um, whereas in accounting, uh, it's um, much more uh, grounded, I found, to be grounded in economic reality. Um, so started my career there. Um, now, 
when I was my last year in grad school uh, to get my master's in accounting, that's when I really went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, I had joined the Mises Circle, which was a reading group at UT Austin, uh, started by Michael Goldstein and Daniel Krawis. And um, we started debating 100% reserve banking versus fractional reserve banking. Um, and at some point, Bitcoin came up of, well, you know, Bitcoin, this system is actually 100% reserve banking. Um and that there's only 21 million Bitcoin. And that got my attention because e even before Bitcoin existed, I had daydreamed that something better than gold would be if there was no supply increase at all. Uh, because gold has approximately like 2% increase in supply every year. And I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be nice if hypothetically there was some kind of money that didn't even have that increase? Um and so when I started learning about Bitcoin's kind of monetary policy, um, it became obvious to me that the Bitcoin was going to continue to grow. And this was like 2012, 2013. Um, and then in 2013, there was that bull market. And it, it, it felt like immediate gratification of like, hey, I predicted this would grow. And here it is growing very quickly. So obviously, I'm a genius. Um, and uh, that's that's what drew me into to Bitcoin and, and just learning and writing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, the bull market makes everybody feel like a genius. And um, and I actually uh, not to show my own article. I mean, it's in Bitcoin magazine, so I don't you know make any money from it or anything. But I wrote an article because my I came in right at the crash of 2020 and like enjoyed just a meteoric rise where I was like, I am so smart. Like I knew all this was going to happen. And and I like quoted in there like, you know, I was like Elon joined and he was even behind me. Like, I'm so smart. You know, this guy sending rockets into space like and and then Bitcoin humbles you. So um, you lived through that when let's see if you came in in 2013 i guess you had to have a bubble it probably burst but um and we don't have to get it too like into the bitcoin price history but actually before we get into that let me get i want to ask more about austrian economics because i'm very fascinated by it and i feel like it's something that's not talked about a lot i think the word i think the phrase austrian economics is used a lot but not a lot of people talk actually talk about it so this is one of the things I was like, okay, I'm gonna dig, I'm gonna drill deep, uh, drill down with Pierre because um, you've focused a lot on it. Um, so Austrian economics, if I, am I giving a correct flyby view of it that like it's basically the opposite of fractional reserve banking and basically what Bitcoin is 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 a the monetary system that would be most suited for Austrian economics. So. Um... The the Austrian economics, um, the school of Austrian economics has, has tremendous diversity in it. And so there are Austrian economists who um, are for fractional reserve banking. Um, and so it's not um, homogenous. Now, I would say they're probably in the minority among Austrian economists um, and that the majority are uh lean towards 100% reserve banking as uh kind of being the way to prevent the business cycle but um there's there's a very healthy active debate uh within uh, Austrian economics on that point what I, in my mind what distinguishes Austrian economics from 
any other school of thought in economics is really rooted in uh, philosophy. So uh, Kant has this um, um, th this idea of having synthetic a priori propositions. And so just to put that into like normal human speak, um, the idea there is that you can come up with um, theories about the world that are not rooted in um, empirical observation in uh, gathering data uh, to validate a hypothesis, but rather are rooted in logic. Um, and that uh, you, um, it's, it's, you know, the, the, probably the easiest example is math, right? That um, if you look at pure math theory, it's not based on measuring a triangle and, uh, you know, kind of taking that approach. Um, it really is based on pure logic. Uh, and so the Austrians have of the view that um, economics uh, is actually closer to uh, pure math theory than it is to physics, for example, where physics uh, tends to be far more uh, empirically grounded than um, that. So, um, and maybe physics is a bad example. Maybe uh, history is actually the diametric opposite, right? History yeah. is like pure um, empirical observation. So um, this contrasted to their competitors um, when Austrian economics was starting. And the reason it's called Austrian economics is that it really um, started uh, in earnest in Austria, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, in the 19th century. Um, their competitors in uh, Germany were the historicists. And so they were like 100 percent like, oh, economics is just it's basically history. It's just uh, economic history. Right. Um, and um, what specifically like what the axioms that they go down uh, are um, what's called praxeology. Praxeology is the study of human action. So praxis is Greek for action. Ology is the study of. Um, and so praxeology is saying, OK, if we can come up with some central um, axioms for uh, what humans do, uh, then we can build up some economic theory. Um, and it really centers on uh, what what ends people have, right? So people, when they act, they act towards certain ends and then the means by which they achieve those ends. And so um, that's really, uh, fr from there, you can develop whole economic theories about um, you know, uh, capital structure and money and all this. Um, but it's, it's, it's rooted in looking at logically how do humans do things rather than, um, tr trying to find like historical examples of what happened in the economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I get, like, I look at it as like numbers don't lie. You know what I mean? Like whenever you're, you know, like I own businesses. So like whenever you're putting together your profit and loss statement, like <laughs> you can't like get around it. Like it's, it is what it is. Like they're, they're all laying out there. So um, what do you think? I mean, I'm trying to understand that Austrian economics as much as I can um, without like, you know, letting it dominate my entire life and completely forgetting that I'm running businesses. Um, uh, but I feel like it's creeping into like how I manage businesses and cash flow and everything. Is that something that you see happen to people a lot that like start studying it? Like, 
they see it, the translation into you know for example like you know I, I've heard you talk about it before but um you know building wealth versus destroying capital maybe that's a good thing to kind of like expand upon yeah absolutely so um I think that there's there's a number of different levels to it. One is that uh, knowing Austrian economics does not make you a great business person. And there are lots of great business people who don't know anything about Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's there's that aspect of it. I do think, though, that, um, you know, perhaps it's because they, they are naturals at business. Uh, whereas other people don't have that natural talent. And so they need to develop it and um, understanding and learning about Austrian economics might help them, uh, you know, have that tool uh, to to kind of be analyzing the world. Um, but also that in the sense that um, really great business people do care about financial statements um, and that if Austrian economics can take somebody who is skeptical of financial statements, right? There are business people who are like, I, you know, I don't think financial statements matter all that much. Uh, you know, other things matter, like uh, knowing your customer, for example. Um, perhaps if they start reading about Austrian economics, they could be disabused of that notion, right? And then see the value of financial statements mm -hmm. and that would uh, turn them around on that. Um, but um yeah, I think that obviously with my accounting background, I do think financial statements are important. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it, it, in terms of my career trajectory, I actually uh, left the world of accounting, got into software development, and then uh, got into like product management. Um, and so I think that business is really it's it's and and this is something Austrians emphasize. It's very complex. Uh, the entrepreneurship aspect of it, um, because uh, pulling together labor, capital, uh, and uh, the market and customers, it sounds easy on paper. And I think that um, like Marxists want it to be easier of like, oh, you're just a capitalist and you just get this passive income. Um, but anybody who's actually run a business <laughs> knows that it's extremely difficult. Uh, everyone in the business... <laughs> Yeah, going in their own directions. Uh, and you've got to constantly stay on top of things in order for anything to happen, um, much less to make a profit, right? Like even making a loss and holding a business together is hard, but making a profit and holding a business together uh, is uh, even more difficult. And so um, entrepreneurial error abounds uh, and uh, entrepreneurial success is, uh, you know, uh, extremely difficult to come by, even if you know everything about business uh, or if there's like if if you look at the history of entrepreneurship there's so many entrepreneurs who might have had one successful business and then um they bankrupt themselves on their second business right uh that it it just uh doesn't turn out well so um and same thing with like inheritances right you'll hear people say oh this this person born with a silver spoon in their mouth um, and then they became successful. And so obviously capitalism is, you know, inherited or whatever. They completely ignore all the trust fund babies who like try to start a business and uh, blow all their uh, capital. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a that's a great point. It kind of makes me think of um, my wife. Well, OK, I was going to make blow. I was going to put it all on her. But 
Um, but I like Downton Abbey too. We both watched Downton Abbey. Um, and I don't know if you ever watched that show, but uh, but Lord Grantham, like you know, inherited the estate and was going to pass it on, but he like managed it terribly. And it was like losing money and not adapting with the times and everything. I think, and I always thought that that was a really good analogy for like what it's like to, to manage wealth. Cause you're like, well, like, you know, things aren't what worked for the prior generation. Isn't going to work for this one. You know, what worked before isn't going to work. Um, and, uh, and you're right. It's exhausting, you know, trying to generate wealth. Um, and so, where do, what do you think the problems are? What do you think leads to people destroying capital in business? Yeah, so, well, first of all, capital destruction is kind of the default, right? That yeah. if you don't do anything, uh, as you mentioned, uh, that it, um, it depreciates, right? Uh, just if you just look at uh, depreciation of, you know, if you leave a car on your driveway, like its natural <laughs> state is that it loses value. Um, and that it takes, uh, even for something as simple as a car, it takes constant maintenance to even like try to, um, minimize the value loss. Um, so I think that there's that, and then there's, um, all sorts of human cognitive biases of, Hey, this worked in the past, you know, why isn't it working now? Uh, the ego, the pride of like, um, uh, not wanting to change because, you know, Hey, the problem isn't me. The problem is the customer or, yeah. uh, you know, try to blame others. Uh, it's this new generation of employees are too lazy or something. Um, so I think that all, all of the, uh, human weaknesses, um, are, are go on display in, in that regard. Um, but also that the, um, you know, the, the government is constantly siphoning value away from people. And so uh, whether it's through property taxes, income tax uh, or inflation, um, you, you constantly are being eaten away by uh, what I would characterize as parasites. Um, and so that makes it all the much harder to uh, stay um, and to, to build wealth, to preserve capital even. Yeah. Um you know, I, I thought about this recently where it's like everywhere you look, you're just, it's like you're standing in the middle of a circle with a bunch of boxers and they're just punching you. And then you like go like that momentum takes you to the next punch. Cause it's like, it's like they tax, they tax the food or you're not, you know, I mean, the, you know, not like basic goods, but like they tax and there's different ways they hide the taxes, but it's like they tax things you buy. Then they tax your income. They tax, uh your real estate you know they tag like it's just everywhere you go and then it's like and on top of that they print the money and that's another tax you know like there's a there's a the inflation tax yeah and um from a business perspective the money printing not only is it an inflation tax on the cash that you would hold in your business it actually it, that tax then gets transferred to other businesses. And so this is the Cantillon effect, right? So um, the reason, uh, the, you know, if we look at how, where does the printed money go? It goes to big business and big banks first. And so um, whether it's uh, in the form of new loans through the banking system or QE, you know, pumping up uh, financial asset prices, that means that Large businesses have a lower cost of capital than small businesses. 
through this process of uh, the Cantillon effect of money printing. And uh, that's a double whammy. So now as a small business, not only is your cash being taxed by inflation, but your competitors now, your biggest competitors are getting a lower cost of capital and are able to uh, grow more quickly than you are because they are being subsidized uh, through the financial system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny, like owning businesses and you see these like opportunities where like, God, if I was just a little bit bigger, I'd be able to get like some easier loans, you know, and it's frustrating because I'm like, if I had those, I, I feel like I know how I'd grow it properly. But uh, yeah, it, the money flows differently, um, depending on your size, depending on who you are. And, you know, God forbid now, if you speak up politically, maybe you uh, don't, you know. Uh, yeah. And, you know, speaking up, but also just being in the wrong industry. So we've seen, um, for example, uh, fights over whether banks can finance oil and gas and coal. Right. So uh, because of these, um, quote unquote, ESG uh, regulations, um, now not only is the financial system rigged in the sense of uh, the Cantillon effect of money printing, but also just pure political power of is your industry popular right now or is it unpopular? That's going to determine your cost of capital. Um, <laughs> unprecedented in uh you know it, it, at least in the united states um it it does have precedent in communist china and in communist <laughs> soviet union uh but uh you know we we used to pride ourselves in not doing that um and uh, that's what caused the us to become uh you know the the leading superpower and the you know most economically advanced and technologically advanced nation uh, but, uh, you know, that that seems to have changed over the really over the past 10 years. It has significantly accelerated. Yeah. This, uh, ESG activism in corporate America. Do you think that's from the World Economic Forum types that are trying to push something into basically push communism into America? <laughs> uh, so I think that um, they are one prong of this. The other prong is that um, because of, we're coming back to inflation, because mm -hmm. of inflation, people can't hold money, right? So um, if you work with a financial planner, they'll say, hey, okay, you've got big goals in the future, right? You want to send your kids to college or you're saving up for a down payment or, or um, you know, you want to retire. So because of inflation, you can't hold cash. You have to go invest that money. And the easiest, lowest cost way of investing that money is to put it into an index fund, right? And so um, what we've seen over the past several decades is the rise of passive investing, where people just um, every month, they, you know, dollar cost average into an index fund. And um, these index funds now have become huge. So uh, any given Fortune 500 company is majority owned by these index funds and um the, the 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 people who are invested in these index funds they don't care about corporate governance right all they care about is not losing money to inflation and so uh they're they're not sophisticated uh value investors who are saying hey the reason i'm buying these shares is because i think they're undervalued not at all they don't care they don't care about that 
Yeah, um, they're just using it as a vehicle to uh, protect their wealth from inflation. And it's caused tremendous concentration of power in these companies that run the index funds. So Vanguard, mm. BlackRock, et cetera. And then these companies are, first of all, they're hiring college graduates from the best colleges, right? The best universities. And what the best universities, uh, what has happened to them is that they've been captured by Marxists. And so you have the brightest minds in this country being indoctrinated into Marxism, uh, which is a, uh, a, it's an ideology that, as far as I'm concerned, been proven false repeatedly, but, uh, you know, continues to survive in academia due to, uh, you know, we could get into that. But, um, they don't even have then, to produce anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, they, 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 and student loans and all of this stuff. Um, and so uh, these um, the, these index fund uh, companies, not only are, are they kind of hiring uh, little Marxists, uh, but they are also under pressure um, from politicians, right? Of politicians saying, hey, look, we would love for our retirement system, right? Our public pensions to invest with you, but you have to be politically activist, you know, across your business. And so uh, here are a list of mandates around, um, you know, uh, so you've, you've got the um, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, part of it. You've got the environmentalism uh, part of it and uh, all the rest. And so um, I think that's that's and, and then the the WEF, the WEF, like I kind of see them as um, they're a great punching bag. Uh, but they're to me, it's just like one of many um, bad actors in the system that is pushing in this direction. I don't think that they're the central coordinating mechanism of it. Um, I actually think that it's uh, kind of insidious in the sense that it's decentralized because it's all just part of um, this inflationary statist system uh, where there is no central coordinating factor. If there was, it would be great because then we could just take them out. Right. And I mean, mm -hmm. in a nonviolent uh, way in, you know, vote them out or whatever um, or lobby against them. But uh, it's actually um, a decentralized uh, cancer. Um, and if we were to point to one central thing, it's the money, right? And that's why Bitcoiners always say, fix the money, fix the world, is that if you take away their ability to print money, then that's what's keeping this whole cancer alive. Uh, and if you take that away, then you starve it, right? Um, and that uh, if, if um, so that's that's why I'm, I'm singularly focused on Bitcoin rather than political activism or anything else like that. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I couldn't agree more. Um... You know, I mean, I, I think I like I told you, uh, my streaming platform is freedom of speech focused, um, but that's just like a, a small part of the battle, um, because really, if you fix if you fix the money and, and like you said, basically like a like a cancer, you know, like where they, you know, I like that you use that analogy because it's like if you starve what's feeding it, then, you know, you can get rid of it. Um, and it's kind of difficult at this point because it's not like. It's not like, oh, you just, you know, have like cancer in this one organ and it's something that we can like cut out and get rid of. Like, no, you kind of have to eradicate the entire body at this point because this money printing has infected everything, hasn't it? 
it has yeah it, and um you know i think that the the the, the like the culture war aspect of it is um doomed to failure because you're fighting a battle on all fronts uh, that is being financed by an adversary who has infinite resources, right? Uh, uh, that they can just print as much money as they want. Yeah. Uh, now, we do see that there are limits to how much money they can print, right? And they've run into that over the past year of like, oh, actually, this is causing inflation. And, um, you know, one, uh, Bitcoin aside, the other argument it would be that um, because their ideology is fundamentally flawed, that eventually it does collapse, and so, you know, that's what we saw with the Soviet Union. Eventually, its internal contradictions cause it to collapse. Um, but that causes uh, lots of human misery for those intervening decades where mm -hmm. uh, the um, ideology is able to prop itself up. And so, um, you know, what, with what's going on uh, with energy prices, for example, we're starting to see people say, hey, look, we need to reopen coal-fired power plants in Europe because otherwise we're going to uh, freeze to death in the winter. Um, and so that's where you start seeing uh, the the system itself collapsing uh, just due on, on its own uh, without, uh, you know, Bitcoin at all. Um, but I, I find that to be kind of the doomsday scenario of, um, well, we, we don't want that. We want the hopeful outcome of Bitcoin actually curing uh, the disease rather than the disease killing the victim. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be much better than you know, like the victim dying and then we do an autopsy on them and go, okay, this is what went wrong. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure that um, as humans that we would be able to like, be like, okay, well, the problem was uh, this monetary inflation. And so now we're going to create a fiat system where we don't create more fiat. Like yeah. that, that, that doesn't seem like uh, the, uh, the outcome in that scenario anyway. Without and, no. And the people that can create the fiat, they don't want to give that up. No, no. and and we already like I, I've seen tweets about like you know people who were um, promoting COVID lockdowns and restrictions and all of this saying, hey, um, let's or, or even the vaccine requirements. There's they'll say like, hey, let's not be stuck in the past. Like let's not point fingers at you know who is responsible. It's like yeah, okay, we're just not gonna make any progress here because uh you know you're you're, you're deciding that you're not gonna uh, hold anyone accountable. There's no one gonna be held responsible. Like there should be Nuremberg trials, right? So yeah, um, the um I think that they're already going this direction of uh let's let's not um look at the past. Let's just uh, move forward. Uh, which means that nothing's gonna change nothing's going to get fixed. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so then what do you think about like, you know, cause basically a lot of people have the theory that Bitcoin is this vacuum that's sucking the, you know, world's wealth into it over a period of time. Um, and I, I, on a podcast yesterday with, I think, you know, Phil Gibson, um, and uh, him and Luke do co-host a weekly show with me. And then um, uh, we, we were talking about like the future system. And I was like, it totally makes sense to me now that like Bitcoin mining will just completely. I always was like, oh, Bitcoin mining will be like a settlement layer. But like the fact that this and I haven't even looked into this fitty fed mini or whatever it is you know the the stable coins on top of bitcoin and all that kind of stuff um but like the, the cleveland um 
the Cleveland Fed, you know, talking about how you can build on top of Bitcoin, a stable coin and stuff like that. It's very interesting. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I wonder if people are starting to see that, like, hey, we pay a lot of money for this settlement system already that's like in existence now. What if we just replace that with Bitcoin mining and those fees are what, you know, it'll be cheaper and more efficient. Um, do you see that as being what's ha- like something that's going to happen? And if so, how are they going, how are the money printers going to try and control that? Cause in a perfect world, the fed adopts Bitcoin, but I don't think they're going to do that. Yeah. So um, I am very skeptical that, uh, that they're going to be able to um, continue having the dollar, right? So I think that um, I'm very bearish on on stable coins and um, on kind of that line of thought because at the end of the day, they're no better than their incentives and their incentives are always to print more dollars. Um, and so in that context, really, the as more people understand Bitcoin, uh, they will hold less in other assets, including uh, dollar denominated bonds and all of this, um, and they will hold more Bitcoin. And so uh, it's a slow process of education, right, where uh, people have to understand, OK, why is it that I have tremendous peace of mind holding Bitcoin? And, you know, it's um, the most Zen asset uh, because from the outside, it's like, hey, Bitcoin's hyper volatile. Uh, there's no way that, you know, uh, I would want to hold it because it'd be too stressful. Um, because then on the flip side is when you look at the fundamentals of, yeah, but hey, look, I put my Bitcoin on a multi-sig and I don't have to think about it for decades uh, because nobody can take it. And so um, I think that once we, well, as as more and people, more and more people cross that bridge, um, that means that the dollar is going to collapse. And so I, I don't um, see any value in trying to bring the dollar like as a layer on top of Bitcoin. Yeah, I I agree. I think they'll try, but they won't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've seen obviously like there's lots of people who use tethers uh, on Tron today. And the reason I think that they use tethers like a stable coin on top of Tron, which is this like nonsense blockchain is because the settlement assurances of the base layer don't actually matter for a stable coin uh, because the stable coin is centralized anyway. And so um, if the uh, base layer screws up, um, the Tether's company that banks Tether's, right, that has the dollars in the bank account, they can fix the ledger. They So they, they could be using a SQL database and it wouldn't really matter. Um, they, they're just using Tron because it's essentially um, a, a system where uh, tethers can foist their negative externality onto it. It's like, oh, this person is going to let us use their database for free. <laughs> why wouldn't we abuse that, right? Like, why wouldn't we just put all of this data on there um, and, uh, you know, not have to maintain our own SQL database? Uh, and then you get the interoperability and like all of this. But um, fundamentally, um, there's not an argument to be made that we need to have stable coins be irreversible, right? Because stable coins will never be irreversible. Um, either you have a centralized issuer like Tethers, they can always reverse a stable coin uh, transfer, 
or you have a decentralized stablecoin like uh, Terra uh, that implodes, uh, you know, and, and goes to zero <laughs> on its <laughs> own. So, like, um, I don't think. Then people will say, "Oh, what about MakerDAO?" If you look at MakerDAO, MakerDAO is backed by USDC. USDC is a centralized stablecoin. So <laughs> the decentralized stablecoins that continue to exist are backed by centralized stablecoins. And so it's like, all right, well, if USDC were to decide to change something, right, and reverse a USDC transaction into MakerDAO, uh, then there's nothing that MakerDAO could do about that, right? Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I think stablecoins, um are really no different than fiat from an economic perspective. They're only different from fiat from kind of a, um, a, a product user experience perspective um, in the same way that a wire transfer is different from ACH is different from a debit card, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I, I see those, like that's the difference. It's like, okay, you can use Tron or Visa. Uh, they're like- it, it, Same that's, thing. That's fine, yeah. But it's not like, the difference between using BTC and USD, right? Like mm -hmm. those, that's a different category difference. Yeah. Yeah. Completely different. And it's, I, I strongly encourage people, you know, I mean, we are sponsored by the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Uh, so you can, you know, store all your Bitcoin on their Bitcoin only hardware wallet. Uh, but I just, I'm in, I've been beating the drum with that. Like, it's like, yeah, it's a sponsor, but I'm like, everybody, you've got to get your keys off the exchange because you know we've seen what's happened but it's also empowering whenever you're like ah like that can never be messed with you know you have your hardware wallet there and you're like that's cool like and you just put it in a safe and you're like that's amazing you know like <laughs> absolutely and and we're still only scratching the surface on what is possible with self-custody and hardware wallets and so like something i'm looking at very closely is that there's um, a project within uh, Bitcoin Core where you, you'll be able to, um, thanks to Taproot, be able to do something like have have a five of five multisig, and then it becomes after a month a four of four of multisig, and then after you know however many days or months a three of three multisig, and so what that allows you to do is have. Um, a level of security where you don't have to, like, if you lose one of your hardware wallets, you just have to wait another month and then you'll be able to access your Bitcoin. Um, and that that also, it, like, in my mind, this is like the perfect multi-sig setup um, where you're combining the elements of spreading out your keys in space um, and then having the redundancy in time. Um, because obviously somebody who's trying to steal your Bitcoin, uh, time works against them, right? Like time is the enemy of crime, mm -hmm. uh, because time means that, uh, the police are after you and, uh, you know, uh, you can't like kidnap somebody for months on end. It just, it, the logistics of it become unworkable. Um, and so, uh, that's something that is only becoming possible thanks to Tamperoot activating last year. And so, I think that like Bitcoin self custody um, is not uh, like we haven't reached its final form yet. It's still evolving. And that, that means that the it goes back to what I was saying about like people understanding Bitcoin as 
this asset that provides tremendous peace of mind that you can, uh, you know, acquire it once and then you know that nobody can take it away from you. Um, that like we're we're still working towards that. Like we haven't. Um, it's already better than any other asset, right? It's already does that better than gold does and better than real estate or stocks and bonds. Um, but in the future, it will continue to improve. And that gap widening, I think that is going to drive even accelerate adoption uh, in the near future of people realizing as products and companies get built around that. Like right now, we only have two companies building around that. We've got Casa and Unchained, right, that are like um, really at the forefront of um, multi-sig and collaborative custody. I think they're doing a great job. I think they're going to continue to improve. I also think that there's going to be new competitors that enter the market and the market's going to grow. Um, and so there's going to be like better products, but there's also people learning the hard way. So people learned the hard way with like Celsius and BlockFi and, um, you know, any other uh, centralized platform. Um, and even going back to like Mt. Gox, right? Mm -hmm. Where... Uh, people learn the not your keys, not your Bitcoin lesson the hard way. Ideally, they learn it by observing others getting wrecked uh, so that they don't lose their coins and they withdraw in time. Um, but I think that um, humans are susceptible to greed, right? And so uh, there's going to continue to be hard lessons. Um, but the combination of great new products coming out uh, along with people getting wrecked um, I think that that's going to to drive the realization that, hey, Bitcoin's advantage is not just NGU, you know, uh, the price going up. Um, it's also the fundamentals of how you hold it is just superior to any other asset. Completely agree. And that's why I recommend everybody go to shiftcrypto.ch slash Bitcoin made simple. Use the promo code Bitcoin made simple to get 5% off. How's yeah. that? Hey, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> That'll make the sponsor happy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it's just, it's so fundamental and I, I think everybody should do it. Um, I want to ask you before we run out of time um, about the Nakamoto Institute, um, because uh, I, first of all, if anybody doesn't know, it's a great place to go and be able to like read what Satoshi said, um, which I think is so important. Um but since you obviously pay attention to what Satoshi said a lot, um, being part of the Nakamoto Institute, which it's nakamotoinstitute.org, right? Yep. Okay. Um, uh, speak a little bit about Satoshi's master level understanding of so many things, because I like when I, I think I, I think it was Preston Pish when I talked to him and I said, I said, do you think it's one person or a group? And and he just said he was like the amount of fields of study that were a mastery level understanding is is kind of mind boggling for one person. Um, so what are your thoughts on that since you've really studied uh, Satoshi a lot? Yeah, um, I, I, I find it to be a really interesting um, question of basically satoshi in, in here's kind of my current thesis in terms of satoshi's genius is that um his software engineering approach um stumbled onto great economics and so um because 
he had, for example, the the halvings. Bitcoin's halvings are a result of um, this um, in computer science is bitwise operator, like a right shift on binary, um, which is like, it, 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 I don't think that he look that he was like okay i want this monetary policy and so let me figure out how to write the code for that monetary policy i think that he wrote the code for the monetary policy thinking of like okay what's the simplest way to write this and then that turned out to be a really great monetary policy huh. now there's there's people who argue that like having the halvings every four years is bad right it's like so disruptive to the mining process that, uh, you know, it makes it hard for miners and it also opens it up to, um, you know, issues with transaction finality. Now that's a whole other can of worms that uh, we can get into, but mm -hmm. um, I think that um, a lot of uh, what we see as like, oh, this is, um, you know, great economics might be the result of first and foremost um, trying to, keep the software engineering very simple uh, and that he was trying to minimize the complexity of the software. Uh, and that leads to minimizing the uncertainty of the economic incentives in the system. Now, that's not to downplay his genius at all. I mean, I think that the the his biggest genius was really around the difficulty adjustment of every two weeks worth of blocks. Let's look at how quickly blocks are coming in and let's update the mining difficulty of proof of work. Um, I think that his, his really his central contribution to um, to computer science uh, and to, to human knowledge. So it's like Satoshi's invention. He didn't invent proof of work, right? Proof of work existed before Satoshi came along um, and published his white paper. Um, but what he did invent is combining the proof of work with the difficulty adjustment in order to have this self-regulating decentralized clock uh, for uh, the Bitcoin ledger. And, and then like, I think that he got so much right, even on things like outputs, right? So he, um, uh, you know, modeled the system to, to have this UTXO set as the ledger, which then you have like the, the altcoiners that came along with like Ethereum and said, Hey, let's, Let's have an account-based model, which turns out to be like much worse than the output model. Hmm. And so it's there's lots of people who have tried to make changes to Satoshi's invention in order to improve it. And only later do they realize that actually Satoshi was right. And that we don't know if Satoshi was right because he foresaw the problems with the other ways of doing things, or if he kind of got lucky on like his first try. Um and it it, it kind of like it gets into this question of like sometimes in software like the the first thing you try is actually um, what your intuition is telling you to do uh, turns out to be right because uh, you know human intuition is actually uh, not so bad it's not as bad as we make it out to be. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like um, I mean I'm not a developer or anything like that, but in through business have have put together and developed multiple websites and stuff like that. Um, and I find that like you, especially early on, you can get into like building something and you write so much unnecessary stuff 
that is makes the whole code and everything so much more complex than it even needs to be. And you're like, wait a minute, what was I actually trying to do? Oh, it was much okay. Like, why didn't I just do 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 like one point A to point B to point C? All right, there we go. And and Satoshi was actually not completely immune to that because he had, for example, um, the the additional ideas in the initial Bitcoin code base, like let's have a decentralized marketplace, let's have uh, decentralized poker, let's have um, what we call today the Lightning Network. Um, so like he he threw a bunch of ideas in there as well and kind of started like coding them up. But I think that he had the wisdom of realizing that the 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 central innovation here is not these other ancillary um you know applications on the side uh it really is the the money um and he also you know outside of the code he did have an understanding that um you know of sound money for example of saying hey look the problem with central banks is that you have to trust them not to print a bunch of money and so it's not like he had no understanding of monetary economics and so he just you know it was pure luck um he clearly uh was someone who was um you know a renaissance man of uh knew the code knew the economics um and uh yeah put it all together in a really neat package where after launching bitcoin there's very few things that have had to be fixed uh in bitcoin yeah there are absolutely things that did have to be fixed right but it's not like it's um oh well we we got this uh rough stone that had to be uh really polished uh into a diamond afterwards like by and large it worked and i've read that um the node software from uh, people have run node software to today that dates back to like 2011 and so uh, clearly, um, you know, there there have been improvements to the software, but not so much that it would be incompatible and uh, that you would have to like change, update, upgrade your software. Yeah, I, even um, uh, Phil had John Carvalho on the network. Um, and I remember John saying it was all around that BIP that was everybody was talking about a month or two ago. Um, and uh and he said, you don't have to upgrade your software. He's like, I didn't, my Bitcoin nodes don't run Taproot. He's like, because I, I didn't upgrade them. They still work. Um, and I think that's fascinating. Um, okay, so last couple thoughts then. Um, who, you know, and I hate, to, I hate this question, but you, you know, run the Nakamoto Institute. So um, I got to ask you. Who do you think is the most likely candidate to be Satoshi? Yeah, um, I, I, I've read about kind of all the candidates that have been uh, written about. Um, I haven't found any of them to be particularly compelling and like persuasive and standing out as um, being Satoshi. So um, I don't have a, a favorite. Um, I don't think that any of the names that have been floated around are him. And so I think it's still very much an open question. I think that it's even harder. Like, I think like, is Satoshi still alive? Mm -hmm. I, 
I like I I'm I, I have to wonder about that because I don't think that humans um like if you have this bell curve of human behavior, Satoshi's behavior, if he's still alive, is like outlandish on this bell curve of mm -hmm. you know somebody who um does does not feel any need to come out and announce themselves as the inventor of bitcoin i it, it's it's truly bizarre human behavior if so i i don't know that he's even still alive um i yeah i i i think that it's one he's one of the most intriguing um characters in human history right uh second only to jesus <laughs> yeah no i agree um and what are your thoughts on so he he referred to the blockchain as time chain and i bring that up because i want to get your thoughts and then i have a fun i have a fun satoshi theory um but uh but yeah what, why do you think he called it a time chain yeah, I, I think that he he called it a time chain because it really is descriptive of what his invention was, which is a decentralized clock. Um, and that this concept of a blockchain, like blockchains existed before Bitcoin, and you know it, any kind of software development process involves version control systems like Git that are very much you know um, in the same vein as blockchains uh, of you know using. Um, hashes uh, and rolling them up into kind of uh, a canonical, um, you know, uh, thread or chain. Um, so time chain makes a lot more sense and um, really, yeah, gets it. What, why is Bitcoin new? Um, and what I find to be troubling is kind of this emphasis on proof of work versus proof of stake where in my mind it's like well talking about bitcoin being proof of work i think it's misleading in the sense that it's not like it's just proof of work it's proof of work plus difficulty adjustment uh equals time chain and so like in my mind like bitcoin is time chain and so then these other systems that are like proof of stake it's like well it's not proof of stake there are no pure proof of stake systems just like bitcoin is not a pure proof of work system right it's a proof of work plus difficulty adjustment what proof of stake is is proof of stake plus developers right it's um that th you have to have this checkpointing uh you have to have or it's proof of stake plus nodes or what we might call super nodes right of um these uh, uh privileged attestation providers or proof of authority is really what it is and so um you know, proof of stake plus proof of authority uh, equals, um, you know, I don't know, trust chain, right? That's what we should call mm -hmm. them. And so Bitcoin is really the only time chain and all of these other things are trust chains uh, is is the, the what I think the the language should be. That's a really good analogy and a great, like, I think we should change it to trust chain uh, for any proof of stake. Um, so I'll give you my fun theory. And I, I hate to go to like this really dumb thought after, you know, having that really, uh, you know, good thought. But, uh, but you know, I want to uh, kind of wrap it up here because I don't want to take too much of your time. But so I, I have this theory that um, 
because I'm a filmmaker. So it just comes to me naturally to like think of the most fantastical idea. Um, and this is like a movie idea that probably Movies Plus will eventually have as an original eventually. Um, but I thought, I was like, what if Satoshi's from the future? Which, you know, is not, you know, people have theorized, oh, it's from the future. But I was like, it, it actually does make sense in the sense that like, I don't think physically it's possible to travel to the past, but what if it's possible through code to communicate to the past? And so, you know, let's just say hypothetically in the future, there's this world where that's invented and there's somebody that's like, oh my God, this is going to ruin the entire world if people are able to talk to the past and change events. And then they realized, wait a minute, what if I create a monetary system that is a time chain that will, by the time, if I set it back in the past far enough, by the time it gets to present day when time this time travel's invented, they can't mess with it because it'll completely, like, it would destroy the financial system because everything's built on Bitcoin. You know, like, every single thing in our life runs on Bitcoin, you know, in the year 2300 or something like that. So I was like, that is fascinating to me, the time chain aspect. Um, so that was my fun theory of, okay, you know, maybe he's from the future and he sent this message to the past and he picked, hey, right after the financial crisis of 2008, that's 12 years before COVID. Oh, this is kind of perfect timing for everything. Um, so that's my fun theory. Do you have a fun theory um, that's kind of like your movie theory of who Satoshi is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I would um, say that, um, you know, I I do think that, um, that that God can intervene in the real world. Right. And so um, I do think that uh, it's it's it, it would not be impossible for uh, God to introduce electrons into, uh, you know, what we call the internet, uh, into this network of computers and, uh, you know, introduce a, um, uh, um, a character, a, a pseudonym into the internet without there actually being any kind of, uh, human behind the keyboard. Uh, and so, uh, that I would be my outlandish, uh, theory for Satoshi is that, um, God saw that um, there's a huge problem with fiat. That is that uh, humans have figured out how to make fiat uh, sustainable enough uh, to where it doesn't just uh, automatically collapse like it did, you know, with uh, past uh, paper systems and that it was causing tremendous uh, damage to, um, you know, the souls of people uh, and that, uh, it was actually, you know, a, a le leading his experiment in a, a direction that was, you know, spiraling out of control uh, into the hands of the devil, and that uh, he he saw it fit to intervene in a way that is um, very nuanced, right? That um, he did not want it to be understood as divine intervention, um, but he also didn't want it to have uh, perfect clarity of like this is humans doing it and so um it, much in the way that he often acts is that he wanted it to be uh very mysterious uh to give us the most free will possible 
uh and um you know he uh, so uh that's and and also to um as you know we started at the beginning of the episode like bitcoin's price volatility like creates humility right so um he also wanted it to um bring out virtues in humans not just the negatives of like the greed right and so um that's yeah I, it's still a, a a view that i'm developing but i i i do think that bitcoin is so important to god's plan that i wouldn't put it out of question that like satoshi nakamoto is um you know something very different from uh what kind of the um secular uh uh you know uh assumptions would be about uh who he is yeah i i love that theory and i i agree with you a lot um because it could either be divinely inspired in someone or but like you know it's not impossible you know people are like well it's electronic like well i mean there's like electricity in our brain you know what i mean like yeah absolutely and and you know my my theological view is that god creates the world every moment uh and that uh he can add and subtract as he wishes uh and that um you know adding some electrons uh is um you know he he added a burning bush at one point uh he uh added the you know resurrection of jesus at one point and so there's not anything stopping him from uh adding satoshi nakamoto into uh, a database on the internet yeah exactly i mean if you've ever studied the shroud of turin you know like I don't know if you ever like read about that, but they said like the the light that would leave that impression of Jesus's face, like is like the power of the sun, like that's how much um, how much uh, power it required um, to leave a photo negative that's like so deeply ingrained. Um, so yeah, the the idea that it couldn't be through computers is a little uh, ridiculous. Um, well, I, I'd love to keep pulling on that thread, but maybe I'll have you back on and we'll just do a whole episode that's like theology and Bitcoin or something. Um, closing thought, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, bull market versus bear market, which do you prefer? And for those of us that are going through our first bear market, uh, what's a pointer for surviving? What's the best way to get through it? Yeah, um, I think, you know, they, they both have uh, their charms. Uh, I think that, um, I mean, I have to prefer a bull market, right? I think that um, all else equal, a bull market indicates that, um, you know, in the clearest possible terms that we're making progress of um, adoption and wider distribution of Bitcoin um, and, you know, the ultimate success of Bitcoin. Um you know, but uh, that's not to say that bear markets are a time for complete and utter despair. I think that um, the way to get through a bear market is one, um, you know, be uh, have that recurring buy, uh, you know, DCA. Um, it's hard to like force yourself to buy like to, or to, to even think to buy. It's it's like the market reminds you to buy during the bull market because you feel like this FOMO of like, oh, you know, I'm going to get instant gratification from buying because it's going to go up 10% tomorrow. Um, whereas in the bear market, you, you're you incentivized to procrastinate and be like, well, it's going to go down some more, so I shouldn't buy, right? And and that becomes uh, to your detriment when, you know, the market is actually bottoming and that, uh, no, it's not going to. Uh, so I think setting up a recurring buy is a great way to kind of hack your way into being an accumulator at any price uh, during the bear market so that you don't um, accidentally wait too long. 
Um, and then uh, I think that, you know, in a bear market, it's very easy to um, lose interest in Bitcoin. And that's what happened to me in my first bear market in like 2015, 2016. I got really interested in quadcopters and uh, computer vision and things like that. And, you know, obviously those are perfectly fine hobbies to have. But um, it, then when the bull market came around, I thought to myself, ah, you know what? It would have been better if I'd stayed focused on Bitcoin and like learned more about Bitcoin and, um, you know, created more Bitcoin content. Um, and so I think that after that, my mindset then in the 2018 bear market was like always bet more on Bitcoin from not just a financial perspective, but also in terms of the time spent, uh, you know, on it. And so um, I think that uh, it's it's just a great investment of time uh, to be learning more about Bitcoin, building on top of Bitcoin. Um, and um, yeah, that would be my advice. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Pierre, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And tell people where the best places to find you because you um, you have a new Twitter handle. So that might. Yeah. Uh, at Bit Bitcoin Pierre. Uh, so uh, Bitcoin, everyone knows how to spell Bitcoin. Then Pierre, P-I-E-R-R-E uh, uh, on Twitter. Um, and uh, my DMs are open. So if uh, anyone wants to uh, shoot me a question or a comment, always happy to uh, chat with people. Oh, thank you so much for coming on, Pierre. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Pierre for coming on. And thanks again to Shift Crypto in the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It is the Bitcoin only hardware wallet. And you can get one at shiftcrypto.ch slash Bitcoin made simple. Promo code Bitcoin made simple to get 5% off. I'll talk to you guys next week. See ya.